Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's program manager. GIA is a community of practice with a shared vision of investing in arts and culture as a strategy for social change. Since 2008, GIA has been elevating racial equity as a critical issue affecting the field. To actualize this work within the sector, GIA published its Racial Equity and Arts Funding Statement of Purpose in 2015. Since then, this journey has reaffirmed the many intersections at play as we leverage our dollars for the deepest impact and continue exploring new ways to be agents of change. This podcast is part of the 2020 Grantmakers in the Arts Racial Equity Podcast Series. In this podcast episode, we are glad to have Deborah Fisher, Executive Director of A Blade of Grass, and Sean Leonardo, an American artist and performer best known for his work exploring the relationships between masculinity, sports, race, and culture. So Sean and Deborah, thank you for joining us today. How are you both showing up? Oh, that's a good question. Um, show, showing up a little, um, uh, yeah, definitely feeling very, this new state of things where, um, you know, kind of balancing childcare and work life and school and everything in the house, yes. you know, so I'm feeling it's, it's a very busy house today. Got it. Okay. And I'm happy to be carving out some time. Yeah. I know. We are honored. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I can only imagine, Deb. I mean, I, with a four-year-old, just trying to establish some rhythm is in and of itself a, a, the largest task that I feel uh, I've had in, in years. Um, however, you know, even in the weariness, I think there's, there is a way in which that extreme focused uh, mm -hmm. of directing your energies in one place or another and really committing to family has a way of uh, shedding light on what should be priori prioritized. And so I have, I have to say that uh, in light of a lot of heat and drama following me and swirling both personally um, and in my, and in my art artistic career, um, there is a way in which you get, you get to refine what matters most. That's right. Mm. Yeah, that. absolutely. So I, I'm going to dive right in. And I'm going to kick it over to you, Deb. So can you talk a little bit about A Blade of Grass and your mission? Sure. Uh, a Blade of Grass was founded in 2011, and we only support socially engaged art. And we were founded with a very broad... Um, you know, kind of mandate in terms of what that means. Mm -hmm. And we were, and we were founded with, uh, with a pretty generous seed contribution so that we could um, do some experimental things. We didn't have right. to uh, start chasing funding right away. So uh, a blade of grass is really dedicated to the idea that it has to make socially engaged art more visible. Um, precisely because it's um, uh, to secondary audiences, right? Because it happens in a community, uh, in a place that is inaccessible or, you know, other people are not invited, right? Such as a prison or uh, a school or among people, uh, only, pe only this group of people of color or, you know, and so on and so on and so on, right? Like, and so 
Um, the power of the work is that it is uh, highly experiential and collaborative, and it resides inside the participation of, um, of people and in relationships and in power dynamics. And because of that, you know, the nut that we've been working to crack, you know, for almost a decade now, actually, is that, um, is to really think about how to make this work understandable and supportable and, and shareable to audiences that are not there. Uh, so we do that with uh, funding individual projects through a fellowship program that is now um, in its seventh year. And we also do that through creating a variety of content experiences, a magazine, films, uh, you know, public programming, lots and lots of different avenues for making sure that things come out of the project that are not the project themselves, but that are, are understand that help people understand the work. Mm -hmm. That's great. And you mentioned that you support projects for people and in places um, that aren't necessarily spaces where uh, groups of people are typically invited. And I'm thinking specifically, specifically about black and brown people right now. Sure. So why the decision to, to dive even more deeply into projects related to policing and mass incarceration? Because socially engaged art, as you mentioned, it's kind of like a broad spectrum, but you've you've gone pretty deep into, into policing and mass mm -hmm. incarceration. So can you talk a little bit about that decision? Absolutely. So um, one of the things that we were founded kind of believing is that we have no idea how to best do our work and that we have to listen first. So uh, the open call is that we've been doing for the past seven years is one of many ways that we are trying to kind of create a listening stance, right? Yeah. Uh, projects ab about criminal justice and racial justice have been um, in the top three uh, issue areas for artists applying to the fellowship since the beginning. Racial justice is the number one issue area for artists that are applying to the fellowship for six years in a row. So we have to listen to that. And yeah. we're trying to create a cohort of projects that is reflective of the body of the open call itself. And we are, you know, thinking through what we need to be invested in by listening to who applies and how they apply. And we're hoping that that creates a feedback loop, right? Like, so we've almost always had multiple projects about criminal justice that are, that are working within the criminal justice system. And we've never had a year where we didn't have at least one project that is actively trying to heal or reflect on or change uh, how we relate to structural racism. Yeah, no, that that's great. And to have an open call and to kind of just like look through what you're getting and have the responses sort of define the direction that you go, I think is really important. And to have one third of the submissions be around criminal justice is fantastic. And so, of course, we have the amazing Sean Leonardo with us today to discuss some of the work that you've done together. And so, so I assume that you were connected through an open call, but, but if not, how did you both get connected because and I know that you've also known each other for some time yeah. now. So if you could talk a little bit about um, that that ongoing and fruitful relationship that you've developed together. Sean and I met because we both worked at Socrates Sculpture Park okay. more than a That's decade right. ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
No, I also want to, you know, make a special call out to, to say that Deb has also participated in my work. That's true. Excellent. And so she comes to the practice as a supporter after having intimately experienced and moved through the work. And I think that for any artist is the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wanna ask, I've seen so many of your videos. Um, one that immediately comes to mind is the I Can't Breathe performance, but you know, there are others. So I'm, which, which one was, did you participate in, Deb, if it I was, can ask? It was I Can't Breathe. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, the one that I was basically sobbing to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, okay, all right. So um, on that note, can you, Sean, can you tell, tell listeners and us a little bit about your art practice in this context? Sure. And, you know, before I start to describe uh, my practice and, and really talk to the intentions of my practice, I also want to note one thing, which you've already brought up, in that, you know, the, the spectrum of socially engaged practice is, is inclusive of many different approaches and, and tactics mm -hmm. in terms of engagement and in terms of being rooted in community action and activism. But I think what's important to note in terms of the, the leverage and support that and a blade of grass grant gives and also the support that the staff offer is this ability for a practitioner like myself, like myself to be highly intentional in regards to the community that we work with and on behalf of. And that, uh, that really allows us to form a different kind of starting point and move in the work with a different kind of spirit because we understand that the work first and foremost can serve a hyper-local constituency. And, you know, and I want to remove some of that language uh, to, you know, to begin with this idea of serving or, 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 and or constituency, this idea that we can co-author and co-design a project with a community that we are a part of and work with so that the project can evolve with the questions and concerns that are most uh, central and most important to those people and to myself for that matter. And so, you know, to answer the, your question about um, the work and, and to address the, kind of the work that A Blade of Grass is supporting, uh, I should, as a backdrop, tell you a little bit how about how I've arrived at this moment, sure. particularly through the justice system and the work that I have uh, dedicated myself to in system intervention, as it can be described. About five years ago, uh, along with Allison Weisberg, who's the executive director of the nonprofit Brooklyn-based Recess, we founded a program entitled Assembly, which in its earliest stages worked in conjunction with partners within the court, namely Brooklyn Justice Initiatives, to create a series of visual storytelling workshops for young people age 18 to 25 who have been arrested. And in order to satisfy a condition of the court, they would come to me for a four week cycle of these workshops. Afterwards, their cases could be closed and their records sealed. Now that work is invested most in the ways in which the young people that come to me have already started to prescribe themselves as criminal. 
And that is the major, that is the major failure of our society is that a young person due to the messaging both explicitly and implicitly that they receive in the streets at home through police interactions at schools feel deeply have internalized this idea they have, that they are less than that they are consistently and constantly devalued so quite often by the time they've been arrested the way they express those circumstances and, and that event is in a very matter-of-fact fashion. And it's because so much of their surroundings has told them that it is just a matter of time. And that's to expect that they would be treated as less than and worthless. And so the work that I'm dedicated to in the space of assembly and through these workshops is the undoing of that definition so that a young person first and foremost sees their own narrative as an individual narrative, as a narrative about a human being, as opposed to some preconceived notion of criminality. I also wanna mention that recess takes a really radical stake in this work and that anyone that quote unquote graduates through the court mandated cycle may choose to stay on and be paid for their creative endeavors. And that work is shaped in, in a, a number of different ways, but quite often takes the, uh, the role of an artist apprentice. And much of that embedded practice, that system intervention practice has inspired through the very similar methodology, these larger public facing works. And the work that A Blade of Grass has collaborated with me on and still does is a work in which I am negotiating conversations regarding isolation and regarding the fear of prison experiences in and around, namely Rikers, with four different group affiliations, corrections officers, legal advocates, both in prosecution and defense, court-involved youth, such as the youth that I work with through assembly, and a final group of formerly incarcerated individuals. And even with the abrupt uh, stoppage of COVID and the risks associated with it where we could no longer convene in person. I'm happy to say that these folks have really uh, owned up to a connection to the work and to a relationship with me. And so we've continued our work through a virtual workshop process that will result Great. in some kind of video pro production. That's awesome. My next question was, was going to be, who is your work for and what do you intend the outcome to be, um, but you've just said so much and your work is for the young black and brown boys. Well, this is one group, right? And would hope to shift their thinking about how they see themselves, not to see themselves as a statistic and to acquire the, you said, acquire the ability to make more choices, which I think is powerful. But in all of your work, you're also working with prison staff. You're working, you're working with so many different people on so many different projects, ultimately to achieve this goal. But, but I'm thinking about um, also the people who attend, attend the performances and who you work with um, outside of the, I, I'm going to use the, the word constituency, but um, kind of, kind mm -hmm. of lightly, but the other people who are observing your practice, what are you hoping 
um, if they don't identify as a black and brown young person, um, what are you hoping that they get from being a part of or observing your work? Yeah, let me provide a few different answers to that sure. because I think it's important to, to state that when I'm working in between communities, quite often communities that, that would identify one another as enemy or opposition, the goals and objectives of, the, of that part of my practice is always still in service of those young black and brown folks that are uh, the, my assembly community and, and I should say my, my neighbors as well as the community in which I live. And, you know, I would not have imagined myself uh, this capacity of, of situating the work in between communities in conflict. But I think what I've learned is that there's a way in which through an socially engaged practice, we can create a different way of existing together in physical space. And it's through the kind of methodology that I pursue in assembly and the practice of many other brilliant artists that we ask people to slow down and reconsider how they see one another. And so to answer your question in terms of like the audience and the public that come to my work, I, I ask them to regard themselves as participants on some level in that what I am hoping for them is to understand that the issues of mass incarceration, policing, that those issues are, are ones in which the removal of our humanity implicates all of us. And there's one thing that I have often said in that the criminal justice system, the criminal justice system predicates its quote unquote success on its invisibility. And by that, I mean that we, uphold it in our belief that only bad people go away. And in order to uphold that system and maintain that belief, we have to disconnect our own humanity from those that are behind bars. And that uh, ultimately is our, our collective responsibility to undo. That's great. Thank you for making those points. And so just to kind of go back to where we started at the beginning of the, of the conversation, what would the message be to funders when it comes to addressing issues of, of criminal justice, incarceration, and policing um, specifically? Well, I think the first thing I would do is ask a question, right, about you know, we're, this is a GIA podcast and we're, and we're not addressing, um, and we're not addressing policy around uh, criminal justice issues. We're not addressing, we're not addressing legislative, le legislative solutions. Yeah. We're talking about art projects, right? Like, so, so one of the things that I would love um, to be better articulated within the funding landscape is why art as a you know and and how do we make sure that we are valuing the art itself for art reasons because a funny problem with this work or this very well-intentioned and important desire that i completely share you know to to make sure that that art funding is going to things that are are really 
consequential like Sean's work, right? You know, an unattended, you know, could be trying to kind of turn, um, you know, misunderstanding what art can do and what it can't do, right? Uh, Sean just said some things that were really clear about what art can do. Art can create cultural changes. It, it can point us, um, you know, in, in a direction where we're seeing that we're thriving. Like, what is the difference between thriving and surviving? It can, uh, it can in a criminal justice context, Anna Bermuda is the, the commissioner of uh, the Department of Probation here in New York City, is incredibly clear about why she has been working with artists for decades, right? Like she, it's uh, the idea that you are a criminal is an identity problem, right? You know, you become the, you become the worst thing that you have ever done, right? And that is a, identity is, high, is cultural and, it, and you can address it with cultural solutions, right? You, you can change your identity by engaging in cultural creative acts. You have to create that new identity. Um, but we, there are a lot of things that art can't do in this space, right? And I think that that, you know, not really fully addressing what art can and cannot do and the role that it plays in a, in a criminal justice or any other social justice ecosystem limits funding. It limits, uh, you know, kind of the visionary potential of what's possible. And it can also sometimes put uh, uh, artists in really weird positions, like the language that we've always used about this in the offices. We never want to put artists on the hook for saving yeah. the world for 20,000 bucks, <laughs> you know, like never, um, because it's never going to happen for one thing. And, you know, because art is a space of imagination, it can just want, and because art can also be, and this is a very good thing, it can be kind of a funny junk drawer where anything that you uh, want to have happen that is totally uncategorizable can go in that space, right? It can be anything and that's good. Um, but that also means that we have to be very responsible, particularly from the funding angle, right? For, say, for being very directed about what kind of impacts we think art can have, as opposed to um, only thinking about the social impact, which is different. Sean's not going to reform the criminal justice system. And that's okay, that's appropriate. What are we funding mm -hmm. instead? That's yeah, right. I no, think that absolutely. makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Um, I want to go off of everything that Deb just say. And in doing so, I need to broaden the conceptual and philosophical definition of policing. Sure. Because I, when I think of art's capacity to confront policing, I also think of the ways in which arts institutions and the hierarchical structures within continue to police black and brown bodies in the ways that it controls and contains practices by black and brown practitioners, the ways in which it tries to contain and control black and brown audiences, 
and the ways in which it silences, mm -hmm. contains, and controls academics and administrators that are working within these structures. And so if we, if we think about policing in those terms, the ways in which the interests, concerns, questions, and lives of black and brown bodies are continuously silenced, dismissed, pushed aside, then I start to wonder what is the philanthropic responsibility to disrupting that hierarchical structure and the ways that white supremacist values operate within these institutions. And one of the ways I think it can, it can counter these structures and these behaviors, these patterns of being is by more intentionally saying to itself, we want to fund ecosystems, that it is not necessarily just project driven, that one project can only do so much and so what would it look like, yes. for example, for an assembly program to be supported not only in the closure of cases, but in the mental health of our young people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the acquiring jobs for our young people, in moving the work into other communities so we develop systems of accountability and care that are so central to our practice and needed in communities outside of our walls. To understand that it is an ethos and an ecosystem that that is what the work actually is it's not just a workshop yeah that's that's absolutely right yeah and you know i i also think it's important to take exactly that idea right and kind of run it through the lens of because sean's absolutely right um, one of the reasons that we're super interested in, um, one of the reasons that Ablative Grass is very interested in, um, in funding, in supporting socially engaged art at a variety of levels, right, is, is precisely this idea of interconnectedness and ecosystem, right? The work isn't a project. And there's something about the way that that changes our definitions of what the, uh, of what the outcomes are, what is possible, what is impact, right? Like everything about why we're supporting it and why it's successful can become um, yes. uh, reimagined by looking to the art itself. Because the art has a very different way of understanding it's uh, all of these questions of like success, impact, mm -hmm. et cetera. Absolutely. Um... Everything you're saying in terms of ecosystem um, and and interconnectedness, I I continue to say this word in this the racial equity podcast series, and that word is intersectionality. Um, just thinking about how everything yeah. everything truly does interact, and when we think about race specifically, and and the need for for support to address ecosystem issues and not just one isolated issue. Um, I, I want to ask if you have any final thoughts, both of you, for our listeners. I, I would like to say one, one last thing, absolutely. And, and Deborah, I'll give you the Please last do. word. Um, yeah. I think what's important in this dialogue is, to, is for us to remember and to remind ourselves that institutions and systems 
while they feel big and are so often considered a monolith, are made up of individuals. Absolutely. And quite often when we talk about, you know, statement of objectives and moving into anti-racism work, what we're asking for is a commitment from a person to see their role in the work as a person, as a human being. And so often, particularly in leadership of philanthropic organizations or museum leadership, but also criminal justice organizations that are moving for reform, moving toward abolition, we see leaders that hide behind the work. And what we need more of are folks that implicate themselves in the works that they are supporting. And that in many respects, and, and you know, specific to this conversation, that their own whiteness and the ways that they see their own individual identity is tied to the work that they support and in the ways that they support. And that to implicate themselves means that they're moving toward the work as opposed to just signing the check and believing that the work is done. Yeah, I wanna just build on that a little bit and go back to the idea that you know, we'd listen to what's going on in the open call and what's going on with artists generally, right? Um, it's, it's a way of working that ultimately within a blade of grass, and I think that this is incredibly effective. Um, we're in a moment of real institutional reckoning in general. I don't know if you guys have noticed. Um, <laughs> no, I, I haven't. I don't know what you're talking about, actually. um, I mean it's it's you know just it's it's all you know the the belt the 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 alarms are going off so loudly in all of our ears and no institution of any kind funding institution museum uh, small arts nonprofit that supports socially engaged art everybody's dealing with with the idea that we can't keep doing things the way that we've always done them right and one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about is um you know the fact that we have let the work change us and that's i think really really important so you know we we did not start Um, A Blade of Grass did not start from a position of being POC-led, having any particular interest or expertise in issues of racial justice. Uh, We have made huge mistakes on this front, Uh, but we have, as as Sean would say, moved pretty consistently toward the work, you know, and toward what is presenting itself to us, right? That sense of things being a call and response, um, I think is an incredibly important way to walk into the future of institutions. We don't know what that is right now, but um, you know, we're finding that, that the old ways aren't working. And I do think that one of the things that is working for us anyway, is the way that we've been able to legitimately be changed by having experiences with the work itself. And I think that that is something that we want to definitely lean into more in the future because that's generalizable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Beautifully said that. Was, was excellent. Thank you so very much, both of you, for being here today for this conversation and for participating in our Racial Equity podcast series. And so to our listeners, we look forward to continuing these conversations. So please be sure to tune into our GIA Racial Equity podcast series and be sure you're following us on Facebook at GIA Arts, Twitter at GIA Arts, and Instagram at Grantmakers in the Arts. And if you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seely, at Sherilyn at GIArts.org. And lastly, as Brian Stevenson says, the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Thank you so much for listening.